this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This episode of the Book Riot podcast is sponsored by Libro FM. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro FM, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who we're talking about, but you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. Listen during your commute while doing chores, walking the dog, or even when you're just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro FM app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, you can check out recommendations and curated lists from the people who know audiobooks best, local booksellers. Listeners of the Book Riot podcast can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Go to Libro FM, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter the code BR3 at checkout. That's BR the number three. Again, Libro, L-I-B-R-O dot F-M and enter the code BR3 at checkout to get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one month. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. Libro dot F-M with code BR3. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 302. We're recording on Monday, March 4th, 2019. I'm Jeff O'Neill, here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're coming to you from bookriot.com. Hello. Yeah, there's not much. That's, those, those things all are true. They, they there's are. no more comment to make about the intro at this point. Like we've said all, <laughs> we, whatever else we could say. We are uh, coming fresh off of a week of sunshine. Yeah, that was nice. And we're getting, we're a little late, so that you're probably listening to this on a, a Tuesday, but not too late if you're still interested in commemorative gear for a 300th episode, I'm moving around. I'm moving this above this, the fold, as they say, Rebecca, just so you know. I'm ready. Bookriot.com slash businessfingers. You can get a, well, lots of different stuff. A baseball t-shirt, which Michelle um, mocked me for not knowing immediately <laughs> Now you know what, what that is. I thought all t-shirts were inherently baseball t-shirts. I didn't realize that a baseball t-shirt was implied, you know, that particular pattern where there's um, color around the neck and down the arm. I, I thought it was like saying a cap and a baseball cap were kind of the same mm, thing or could mm-hmm. be used interchangeably. I was wrong. So there we go. My haberdashery um, level has been increased by 0.5 at this point, but you can go find, you know, there's laptop cases. They say business fingers on them, uh, laptop cases, shirts, clothing, stickers. Uh, laptop stickers that I'm rocking right now or a soon to be as soon as it comes. A tote bag. Yeah. Go check it out. It's fun. Uh, let us know if you, you liked it. Uh, maybe we'll do something again for episode 400, which will come up quicker than we could possibly imagine. All right. So there's that. Let's do our first sponsor, The Chef, by a, a little author you may have heard of called James Patterson. You've heard his name, but have you read his books? James Patterson has sold more titles than any other author with 385 million books in print. His latest thriller is The Chef, and it features Caleb Bruni, a New Orleans police detective by day and a celebrity food truck chef by night. In the days leading up to Mardi Gras, Detective Rooney comes under investigation for a murder he is accused of committing while working as a major crimes detective for the New Orleans Police Department. 
He fights the investigation and discovers a secret ploy by terrorists to commit more murders during the city's busiest celebration, Mardi Gras. He knows he must act, but he's also in danger. No spoilers. I'm not going to give away the ending, but there are twists and turns and New Orleans treats, uh, and you'll be able to eat them all up. So if you're looking for a book to jumpstart your 2019 reading list, it is an ultimate page turner. It's The Chef. The Chef is available now in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook everywhere books are sold. Thanks to The Chef by James Patterson for sponsoring this week's show. I got the first line item here. Uh, feed, listener feedback. This is one of my favorite listener feedbacks we've ever gotten. I'm not sure if it was kosher um, to use this person's name, so I'm going to err on the side of caution. But someone who works in a copyright office said in, uh, wrote to us in response to our story about um, the uh, AI oh. that was generating Tolkien... I don't even know what you call it, uh, uh, bot fiction Fanfic? or whatever else. Yeah. It's not only really a fan, no. it's sort of, I don't know, it's a fake fan, uh, uh, algo, algorithm fic or something like that. <laughs> and, and I said in this, I kind of tossed off some like weird potential edge cases or unexplored territories about what this might mean. One, I was like, copyright. Well, if a computer wrote something and a computer doesn't die and our current copyright law stipulates, you know, it's based upon the author's lifespan. Well, could these things sort of be copyrighted in perpetuity? You can see how some businesses, especially, mm-hmm. find that very interesting. You know, Disney. You know, the, the, long been the well. Let's just see the most conservative lobbyist for um, copy, things coming into the public domain. But this uh, writer said that actually the current copyright law only covers human created works. So theoretically, if there were an AI generated work, it would immediately not be. It's not protected by current intellectual um, property law. It would avail- immediately be available for uh, repurposement, uh, copying. You can't plagiarize it. Um, I'm guessing in the fullness of time that law will not stay the way it is. That you know businesses will lobby that if you know if a company is a person, as some as some uh, things argue, then if the company creates the bot or the the algorithm or the whatever that creates the thing, then the company owns the thing. But currently, right now, um, AI generated artistic works not generated by copyright. And I thought that was a fascinating little dive into where we are and how the law and technology are, I don't know, both, both the kind of, it, we're in weird places. Things are happening fast and the law historically is a lot slower. And that's a strange one that I thought was fascinating. So thank you so much to um, Redacted uh, for, <laughs> um, for sending that along. We appreciate your feedback so much. The Redacted Birdie. Yeah. Any thoughts about that, Rebecca? What do you think? Just kind it's, of weird, right? I'm not sure. It is just kind of weird. It, it definitely feels like one of those cases where the law has not caught up with yeah. technology. Like, oh, it's a bot, so it doesn't infringe on copyright. Seems like the letter mm-hmm. of the law, but not the spirit. Um, right. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see how that all develops. You know, the way that these things go law around copyright, I guess law around many things, tends to develop after something interesting happens. Uh, So I think that's really the biggest question mark in my mind is like, what will be the first thing that prompts re-examination of this? And given how litigious the Tolkien estate is, maybe it will be. Um, Maybe it will be something going on with them and bot fiction about hobbits. Uh, but I think that'll be, it'll be fun to watch. And I think inevitably that's going to happen. We'll see some yes. court some case. Cha- or... some, cor- some company will challenge yeah. the, the law yeah, based on something or other. Um, 
fascinating to see there. Um, You want to do the next follow-up? Yes, our next follow-up. You know, this is one of those follow-ups that could have just been part of the whole story if I had scrolled a little further when we were talking about Just scroll, lady. Scrolling is fundamental. I'm guilty of that too. (laughs) Scrolling fundamental is a wonderful show title. (laughs) Um, One of the uh, listeners pointed out to me that um, when we were talking about the Honey and Wax book collecting prize uh, a week or so ago, which is available to women under the age of 30, who have interesting book collections and bibliographic rigor. Um, I was like dreaming that one of them would be around romance. Mm. And indeed, in 2017, Jessica Cahan, who's a public librarian from Ohio, won the Honey and Wax Prize for her collection, Romance Novels of the Jazz Age and Depression Era. She's collected 300 popular American romance novels of the 20s and 30s. And that is not a small task to have you mm. know books uh, kept well intact uh, from all almost a century ago, with an eye to creating bibliography of fiction that's often dismissed as frivolous. Uh, So she's looking at what romance has done uh, for women's perspectives, I guess, throughout history and has a nice collection. And I'm just happy that that has already happened. It's so yes. nice when the thing that you're wishing to be in the future <laughs> has already occurred and you don't even. <laughs> yeah, it's a very, it's, it's great. I mean, fascinating. Um, uh, to see what's um this will be we're, i'm i'm putting a pin in this to to come back and mm. so hopefully as soon as we find out about the winner of this um iteration we'll we'll be on the ball a little bit but speaking of wishing things into existence that may or may not already have been the thing i feel kind of bad about this next one oh, i have to say okay well so i joked semi seriously that i wanted an american company to mm. to sponsor the booker prize you know, because it would cause angst. I didn't actually mean, I don't like this. I mean, so an American company, ha- it's not a company, a foundation, mm-hmm. uh, an American U.S.-based philanthropic organization, we'll, we'll talk more about in a minute, is now going to be the sponsor of the Booker Prize. And uh, it's kind of those things like, I kind of like the idea of trolling in abstract, but when it actually comes right down to it, I don't like to make people, I don't <laughs> want people to feel bad. I don't like this. That some people, I can understand why, you know, that... It's, it's more theoretically gleeful than real gleeful. Theoretically I, 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 gleeful. <laughs> theoretically gleeful. That's that's me in a nutshell. Um, so that's what's happened. So I, I do feel sympathy for those of you um, who really are, are really upset and don't think that it serves the interest of the Booker Prize is trying to do to have Americans included. I, I think I disagree on the whole, but I totally understand where you come from, at least I think. And so this one is a little bit of a... I don't know if it actually matters. It does feel like a bit of a twist of the knife. Um, so Crank Start, we got to come back and talk about the name in a minute, <laughs> but basically started by uh, Michael Moritz and uh, Harriet Heyman, who are uh, married. Um, uh, Michael Moritz is a capitalist and, and author, uh, hedge fund, or a VC, and uh, Harriet Heyman is a novelist and journalist. And they started it in 2000. So in Silicon Valley years, this thing's been a- around a while. And the Crankstart, I'm reading now from this mm-hmm. Publisher Weekly article, they'll be in the show notes. The Crankstart Foundation provides a variety of public support in the form of scholarships to low-income students, homeless initiatives, gifts to the ACLU and support civil liberties, and grants for the arts and journalism. So that falls clearly falls under this purview. And the quotes are, neither of us can imagine day a day where we don't spend time reading a book. The Booker Prizes are ways of spreading the word about the insights, discoveries, pleasures, and joy that spring from great fiction. Um, the sponsorship starts June 1st, 
and it will revert to its former name, which I guess is just the Booker Prize. So it won't be the Crankstart Booker Prize, which is, I think, a... a, a That's a, a good choice. Exhibition, a wonderful exhibition of taste. Um, <laughs> I'm, guessing, uh, I'm guessing on Moritz and Heyman's. Like, they seem like they want to make the Booker thing a thing and aren't using it to publicize the Crankstart, you know, whatever else that may mean. I like the idea of Crankstart. Like, it's hand-driven. It's very physical. It's, it's sort of... Um, it's an angular word. Let's put it at that uh, from, from my point of view. So the Booker is getting funded. It's by an American. I mean, maybe a con for some reason. It's a nonprofit, maybe a pro for some people. But then Silicon Valley hedge fund, you know, billionaires or, you know, very, very wealthy people might be a con. I'm not sure how you're going to fund the Booker Prize without this coming from a big money source. Um, so that was maybe baked into the pie. But that's the story. Rebecca, thoughts and yeah, feelings. And you know, what do you want to say about this? I don't know a ton about the man group that was the previous sponsor, but it seems to me, given the concerns that people tend to have about venture capital and large investment firms, that Mm -hmm. Crankstart, at least in its stated mission in this piece from Publishers Weekly, is more closely aligned with a literary prize than just a... um, then just a venture capital group like the Man Group was, which was which did have naming privileges. You know, it was mm-hmm. the Man Booker Prize. They did get publicity, uh, and so like, I understand the concerns about having a U.S. based organization or business tied into a historically UK focused prize. But this seems to me to be at least a potential improvement. Um, Like it's more closely, their missions do seem more closely aligned. We don't know if they're going to have any involvement in how it's run other than giving money. Um, Yeah. Presumably a group, well, I would hope, maybe let's not presume, um, but hopefully a group of people that are funding a prize are familiar with how that prize has traditionally been awarded Mm -hmm. and what it's focused on. And um, we can hope that they're not going to try to like drag the booker into giving awards to a bunch of people outside of the UK or to straying from the mission. I do think it's very wise that they did not name it the Crank Start Booker Prize. Uh, it's just not super, yeah. doesn't roll off the tongue. No. Um, but I think being outside the UK, I have a hard time identifying with or understanding the concerns in a personal way about what it right. means to have a US-based organization tied to this mm-hmm. prize. It seems to me like if getting a funder is better than not having a funder, okay, good, you have a funder. And that the organization, I would think the Booker Prize Foundation knows what they're about and they don't have to take a partnership. Like we don't the the big things that we don't know are who else did they talk to? Um, right. Was the Crankstart Foundation the only one that came forward to offer money, or did the Booker Prize Foundation have some choices and they ended up here? Um, I always wish that there could be more public discussion about those things because I think it, it, it could mitigate some of the worries mm. about it if they were able to say, you know, we spoke with three groups. Maybe they don't want to name the ones that they didn't take money from. You know, you don't mm-hmm. want to necessarily call out the people you decided not to go out on dates sure, with. Sure, yeah. Um, but they could say we've we yeah, we considered three or five organizations and this one most closely aligns with what we're trying to do. Um, and mm-hmm. here's why we're excited to work with them. And maybe some of that you know, PR effort is happening in the UK and we're not seeing it come up just in Publishers Weekly and stuff in the US. But um, in a, um, maybe not shocking, but in a contrary to how I tend to do things here, Jeff, <laughs> I'm going to reserve some judgment. Yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> I, think it, I think it could with, be all right. Reserve the, resi- reserve the right to reserve the right to mm-hmm. sort of uh, situation. Yeah, how much the money is for, it's a five-year agreement. 
um, presumably in the vetting process or deciding who to go with, um, the booker wants to protect, you know, it doesn't say anything about how much influence any of these people might have. You know, when we talked about the booker leaving, there was some, there was some discussion of the man group was disputing. They got into some sort of dispute and I don't remember, but there was some public disagreement um, that doesn't make anyone's job easier. And I wonder if there's writers or conditions of the sponsorship that say they do have input on the bookers machinations and how they administer the ward or they don't Um, be, be fascinating to see. I guess I could certainly, I could think of worse sponsors, like even, even just like, um, I'd be curious to hear with people who really care about the sponsorship. Would you, let's just, as a, as a game, would you prefer the Crankstart Foundation or let's, I'm trying to think, um, Jaguar, like a, a British car company, you know, if you had to pick between one or the other. Um, so I think, I think that's, that's really interesting to, to think about, you know, if you can't find the perfect sponsor or who would the perfect sponsor be? I'd be mm. fascinated to hear what people would really, would really like to see this happen. So, um, we can talk about it more if, if people. Have yeah, that's back. a good question. All right. In so the meantime, let's see where you want to go next. Would you like to hear about our next sponsor? Let's do that. All right. Our next sponsor this week is A Justified Murder by Jude Devereaux. In the town of Lachlan, Florida, people have been rocked because two bodies were uncovered in the roots of a fallen tree. Despite their lack of investigative experience, Sarah Medlar, her niece Kate, and Jack Wyatt found themselves at the center of the mystery. After a Mm. narrow escape, they vowed to never again involve themselves in something so dangerous until Janet Beeson is murdered. Sarah, Kate, and Jack are determined to leave this case to the professionals but once the town gets talking they begin to see that there are more secrets buried in quiet Lachlan than anyone could have imagined a justified murder is a mystery of old secrets deadly grudges and the improbable group of friends who are determined to uncover the truth regardless of the consequences this is book two in the Medlar mystery series following book one a willing murder if you're a reader of cozy mysteries a fan of Mary Higgins Clark you're going to love Jude Devereaux's Medlar Mystery Series. Jude Devereaux is a number one New York Times uh, bestseller. Readers who are new to the series will quickly catch up. There's juicy neighborhood gossip and a good dose of humor built up to a dramatic ending that's equal parts wicked and funny. So that's A Justified Murder by Jude Devereaux. It is available wherever books are sold, or we will have a link to it in the show notes. Thanks to them for sponsoring. Well, you thought we were done with To Kill a Mockingbird Broadway adaptation news. This can thing is we twists be? and turns. <laughs> can we just be? We can't. Be. I don't think we can. I don't think we want to be. After so, Rebecca hadn't heard the story when I said, you know, had you heard the story? She said no. So here's the deal. So we've talked about um, the um, uh, Sorkin written, Scott Rudin backed version of To Kill a Mockingbird that the Lee Estate was trying to shut down. Um, if I remember correctly, because of changes to the characterization of Atticus Finch, especially like, Mm -hmm. it's not a straight adaptation of To Kill a Mockingbird, I guess I was trying to say. And it's been a big hit. Um, We talked about that's one of the most lucrative Broadway plays in history. Well, now what's happened is that um, the production company behind this Sorkin penned adaptation, I hate it when I say that, Sorkin wrote this, he didn't pen it, he probably wrote it on a (laughs) MacBook, Um, is now threatening... Uh, is is sending cease and desist letters to productions of in, of small um, theater companies around the country that have been that have are that are or are planning to 
um, stage the existing canonical stage version of To Kill a Mockingbird, which had been around for decades. Okay, but why? Um, Christopher Sergal basically saying that now the 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 Sorkin back production, the Rudin back production, now is the canonical version, and they have the right, <laughs> and this infringes upon it. Um, which, from a legal standpoint, I kind of understand. Like, if you bought the rights to Kill a Mockingbird mm-hmm. from the Lee estate, I don't know how the theater licensing in this particular thing works. Uh, I'd be curious to know. Like, d- does the Rudin back company like? Does the Siegel version hinge upon a Lee estate having, you know, I, I don't know. You can see the the the, the web that's that's yeah. tied here. But they're to the point of, you know, there's this there's this production in Buffalo that was just getting ready to open and they had 19 actors and they were had performed for weeks. Um, they're issuing refunds and just, you know, can't do it, uh, which seems like a real bummer yeah. to me, I have to say. One, which, which is the one? I, this was a nice move. Um, the Buffalo production is now going to stage an adaptation of George Orwell's 1984 <laughs> in response, which seems very uh, witty and, uh, and urbane and, and cutting kind of a response. Um, so I, do I don't know. It seems, it seems, it feels to me small potatoes yeah, for the, the amount of thing that's know. going on here. I, but there could be that people are legitimately confused because uh, there, there are two different things called the same thing. Well, I'm just not sure. I, think, this, I feel sort of bad about this, but I'm not sure the way around it yeah, or, what, I don't, or what's the best idea. I don't here. know. Like Maybe people are legitimately confused. Maybe it yeah. doesn't matter. Like if your small town is performing the original canonical version of To Kill a Mockingbird, mm-hmm. like actually let me rephrase. I think most people in the United States who are going to buy tickets to a stage adaptation of To Kill a Mockingbird probably assume that what they're getting is whatever the original stage adaptation was. Mm-hmm. Like this news about the Sorkin, you know, written on a MacBook version um, has been, I think, relatively limited to like the literary world and people who yep. read the New York Times. <laughs> and so if you're outside of that, like literary bubble, seeing the controversy mm-hmm. about this, like, you know, theater in the park in Kansas City, where we both grew up, does Broadway adaptations every summer. And I would just guess if they were going to do To Kill a Mockingbird, people would roll in there, assuming that what they were going to see is the original version. So, like, maybe mm. there's some confusion. Maybe there's not. I'm not I'm not sure that that really matters. I wonder here if this is one of those cases where, like, and maybe our copyright birdie can fill us in. Ooh. I'm not sure if it's a copyright thing or a trademark thing or what. But I know that there are cases where, like, if you own... I believe it's trademark um, to something. One of the ways to be able to enforce trademark is to demonstrate a history of trying to enforce trademark. And so I wonder if there's some of that going on here. Like, I don't love the other possibility, which is that the folks behind the new Sorkin adaptation are just kind of acting like bullies trying like they're not going to be hurt by Hmm. the buffalo production with 19 actors you know that's not a threat to a broadway edition of a play i don't think um so i hope that there is some like legal precedent reason that they have to enforce these rights and that that that's what this is about um is just a guess and i don't think that's the kind of thing you can really say in a release you know you can't be like well we're only pursuing this because we have yeah. to pursue it in order to well maybe you can i don't know yeah i mean didn't isn't that what the, the rolling estate sort of said about that Baltimore oh, fan film true. sort of that's the one that's the one example yeah. i have that's my in my uh my availability bias yeah because, i mean it I seems like you could. I, just don't, I don't love the feeling of this no. i hope that there is an understandable 
reason. Um, well, let me let me do a little bit more of this for you because I think it's understandable even if we don't love it. I mean, look, shutting down local productions, local community theater production of tele- of anything feels kind of bad mm-hmm. in, in general. Um, the legal case is something like this. So this is the New York Times piece, which is good. Alexander Alter and um, uh, the two of their um, books and sort of ideas. Michael Paulson, co-byline, really good piece. Um, but they said, talk to a legal expert that said, you know, if they own the rights, they own the rights and they can enforce them however they want. Um, but it also su- suggests, and there's not a direct quote, but it's like an indirect quote. It sounds like Alter or, 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 um, or Weissman got a quote from someone on the production said, um, the, this is a direct quote from the piece now. The restriction on local productions are meant to protect the financial viability of a national tour. So now that you could, now mm, if there's a national tour okay. of To Kill a Mockingbird, okay. and there's these other To Kill a Mockingbirds, I mean, I understand that. Like that could be confusing if, like, if the if the the Sorkin the MacBook yep. Sorkin okay. show title mm-hmm. is coming to <laughs> Buffalo, and there's the community theater one. Got it. That might be legitimately confusing. Now, and could you do something perceived, else? Yeah. Could you do something else? Could you say to the Buffalo production, "Hey, we're going to be there in November. Just make sure this isn't up in November, and make sure you know." I, I, I don't know. Maybe that's impossible. Mm. Uh, maybe I'm being um, pie in the sky, you know? unicorn, uh, positive, positive thinking about it. <laughs> um, but I, you know, it's it's tricky. It's it seems it seems tricky. It does seem tricky. I like the idea of that of the mm-hmm. MacBook Sorkin people being able to be like, "Hey, we're going to be there in November. If y'all want to do your thing in April, and then we will build all of our publicity around new To Kill a Mockingbird, new To Kill a Mockingbird, mm-hmm. or updated or whatever. Like that requires probably more coordination, and they probably don't want to have to work with every local theater office around the country that's doing. Yeah. Uh, you know, an original To Kill a Mockingbird. I get yeah. that, like, that it's at least that it could be perceived by the new production as a threat to their national tour. Um, hmm. But it's just, like, everything around everybody doing legal action on To Kill a Mockingbird just feels, it just feels, like, unnecessary. <laughs> like, why are we spending our time on it this? It does seem like public domain, I mean, public domain does solve this, right? I yeah. Mean, Harper Lee, it's going to be a long time. I mean, the book is going to be more than a hundred years old by the time it comes in the public domain. So that's too bad. Here, I, I have the I have the one sentence reason we feel bad. I okay, can, it's it's from the Times piece. Mm-hmm. Olivia Mongelli, an eleven year old girl who was to play Scout, Atticus' daughter in Dayton, said the cast learned during evening rehearsal that the play would be shut down. Mm-hmm. Everyone on stage was just in shock. Olivia said, "I just sat there for a second and said." This is that's where the eleven year olds oh, who are getting Olivia. ready to play scout. That's you know, what that's what that's what it is, right? Right. That's what I'm yes. feeling. Is that what Here's we're feeling? Here's my pie in the sky. Then is that when the yeah. MacBook Sorkin production goes to Buffalo, oh. they should reach out. Like in any of the cities where they're shutting down original productions, they should reach out to those cast members mm-hmm. and find a way to involve them in some ensemble situation. Like I know absolutely nothing about yep. what the casting of the new version is, but like. There's a courtroom scene in To Kill a Mockingbird, mm-hmm. and presumably, at the very least, they need bodies to sit in their fake courtroom on stage, and maybe Olivia can be one of those, or could like be Scout's friend running through a yard right. or something. Um, but I think that would be a nice gesture of goodwill. I don't think it's going to happen at all, but I'm happy to wish for it. Yeah, um, they could I- find someone, yeah, a local talent scout that can find, well, I guess... Locally talented scouts um, to play these things. Boy, don't you just oh, love Jeff. it when a plan comes together. Uh, so, so there's that story. Boy, I hope I hope no one out there has been in a 
look, I've got kids and they're young and I, it's the kids who are excited to be in their community production that now can't be mm-hmm. that real. That's really yeah. talking at my heartstrings, I have to say. You know, an 11-year-old uh, getting pretty, that uh, bummer. And you can't really explain all this copyright business to an no, 11-year-old in a way that no, makes any no, kind of sense. No. So anyway. That's okay. too bad. Um, that is too I bad. I guess this is in the audio, sort of an ongoing, uh, su- maybe naive surprise about the long tail of audiobook production um, is the next story I want to get here. Um, f- again, if you would have asked me, is there a span? Is- are there audiobooks in Spanish of the Harry Potter series? I would have said, I would be shocked if they're not, and I would have been shocked because mm-hmm. there hasn't been. Um, this the Spanish language version of the Harry Potter books are now available for the first time in digital audio. Uh, okay, so yeah, um, and it is narrated by Carlos Ponce. 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 Um, I'm not sure there's much else to say about it. That's the story. I guess it's that that w- this hasn't been a thing before. Um, yeah, that's... Th- I'm surprised. I'm that surprised. is the reason that I put this you know. on the podcast, both the long tail of audio development, but also uh, a story that we hear every now and then or that readers point out to us when we get into accessibility, really, yes. is how many readers, especially in the United States, are Spanish language speakers or originally Spanish language speakers, mm-hmm. and how relatively little reading material there is made available to them, that there are um, not a lot of Spanish language translations of books originally written in English made available to U.S. readers um, or available to folks in South America that want to read South America or Spanish speaking nations um, that want to, you know, read books that happen to come out in English. Um, Harry Potter is so huge that I figured that even though there are just aren't very many <laughs> right. like Spanish right. language adaptations, surely if there are any, there must be a Harry Potter exactly. one. Exactly, like, and would there be zero, and right? there wasn't, yeah. and like Harry Potter was sort of late to audio in in the life of Harry Potter, but it was that's been several years, and it was a big deal with Jim Dale, and then now there's the Stephen Fry versions also. Like right. there are two English language versions of Harry Potter on audio now, and we're just getting to a Spanish language one, and that was sort of the top line that I took away there. Is I think this is a really real uh, blind spot in U.S. publishing um, in particular, not just audiobooks, but in understanding what a vast uh, percentage of readers uh, who are potential customers for them would be very happy to have Spanish language adaptations made available, um, either in print or on audio or all of the above. Um, But that Harry Potter hadn't made it Mm. out was a real, um, yeah, yeah, that was a real, not eye-opener, because this is not news to us that this happens, um, or that it doesn't happen, rather, but um, was a sort of, that was sobering to realize that, wow, this is how far behind we are here. Well, I don't think I'm speaking out of class when I said this is something we've thought about on Book Ride itself. Mm-hmm. Like, what yeah. what can we offer? Um, you know, that's something we continue to think about, hopefully, at some point. You know, we, we continue to think about what would make sense. If you've got ideas for, you know, if you're a Spanish language speaker, consume books in Spanish or know someone who does, um, podcast at bookwrite.com if you've got ideas mm-hmm. for what people would like to see. I don't, it's hard. I don't think this is bigger than the Harry Potter story in this article, but it might be. But it says the Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, the first one to come out, is what's available now and the rest are coming uh, later in the year. But it's going to be kind of the cornerstone for a digital cultural hub. This is a piece in Bustle linked to the show notes called Audible Latino, hmm. where you can find um, a bunch of things that Spanish language speakers might be interested in. So there's uh, the current offerings include Talking While Female and Other Dangerous Acts, a collection of original short stories from Latinas across the U.S. 
um, a Spanish translation of The Little Prince. Hmm. Um, there's a, a weekly humor show and an X-Filed Cold Cases, which is basically an extended universe X-File show available in Spanish for the first time. So that's that seems very cool. And I, I'm guessing there's going to be a market for that. I'd love to know why these particular products were were picked. Um, is X-Files huge in the Latino community? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Maybe they had one available. Um, really cool. So that, that might be something too in the, in the wider context mm-hmm. for, um, you know, finding and surfacing and, you know, subsid- or not subsidizing, but paying for content that then Audible and other people can sell and make it available online. So that was cool too. Yeah, it'd be interesting All to follow. Right. Okay, what here's are we doing next? one that... I got some tweets about, I think Hmm. you probably did as well, that was just kind of a head scratcher of like, what's going on here? Um, Barnes & Noble is doing a hashtag book haul um, H-A-U-L, blowout yeah. sale. Um, for those unfamiliar, the hashtag book haul thing tends to, I think it originated on YouTube of YouTubers, mm-hmm. um, booktubers doing videos of their book hauls, of the latest things they picked up at the bookstore in the library. And uh, it's since generalized out to photos on social media of here's what I just bought at the bookstore. Um mm-hmm. So Barnes and Noble knows what a hashtag is. Is the, <laughs> is the oh look, there's the ungenerous side there of the bed. It is, yes. um, and the sale is like all books fifty percent off for titles that are included in the sale. There are big new front list hardcovers. There's a lot of books here. Fifty um, percent off is a deeper discount than you see basically anywhere except the remainders on Barnes and Noble typically. And yeah. I don't know what it means, but I thought it was interesting that the theme of messages that I received from people being like, have y'all seen this? What does it mean? It's like, what does it say about Barnes and Noble's business that they're doing a sale where a Hmm. a bunch of things are 50% off? Like, is this good for Barnes and Noble because it's going to bring in a bunch of money? Is this a bad sign? Like, are they trying to do Hmm. clearance of things? And I don't know the answer to any of those questions. So I am just here to join in the chorus of head scratchers. Yeah, we'd like Little Birdie's welcome on this too. I mean, the timing makes sense to me. This this has to be, if not the quietest, one of the quietest times of year for book buying. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, Mother and Father's Day, graduation, summertime reading. It's not first of the year after Christmas and, and the holidays and people spending money on gift cards and you know it's not the holiday season it's not, not the fall it's kind of nothing it is it is the 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 trough of the book buying calendar so as, as a way to spur sale not unlike you know basically um black friday sales right just dip deep discount lost leaders to get people in the door remind people that barnes and noble exists um 50 off is you're not gonna you're that's that's cheaper than an amazon standard price you know the discounting for new hardcover is pings out around 45-ish percent. So it's cheaper than that, though, though it's maybe worth also saying, though not by much, frankly. There is kind of a an ongoing surprise how cheap new books and hardcover, especially on Amazon, mm-hmm. are. Like sometimes I think I forget how uh. remarkably inexpensive they are. And that 50% off Barnes & Noble feels like a big deal, but when you look at the price compared to sort of what Amazon is on a normal day, it's like a couple of bucks, mm-hmm. right? Which I don't know. What, I'm not saying it's good or bad. I think it has consequences. <laughs> I'll say yeah. that. Um, I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure if it means anything. Um, 
or not. So yeah, podcast at bookriot.com if you've got if you've got tea leaf reading you'd like to do <laughs> or you have other information that you think is relevant or or is it exciting? You know, is this a, it got our attention. It were and then some <laughs> we're talking right. about Barnes and Noble uh, <laughs> right now. So there's that part of it works. Yeah, that was a that was an eye raiser cuz I was surprised how many tweets we we got a couple emails about it too that people were wanting to know what it was. Mm-hmm. Maybe people were thinking it was sort of a canary in the coal mine situation of that this is how you would start a liquidation uh-huh. or like you're, yeah, getting, I think you're getting rid of, of stock or something like that, which maybe it is. I have no idea. Would it really that move that many units? I, I don't know. Um, so I think we're both in the uh, question. This is a mystery box mm-hmm. kind of an item uh, for us at the moment. Okay. All right. Let's do another sponsor. Last sponsor of the day. Mm-hmm. If you're like me, there are so many great... Actually, if you're not like me, there are still great nonfiction books out there. But if you're like me, you might want to read all of them, or as many of them as you can, but you just don't have the time to get to everything you want. With Blinkist, it's the only app that condenses thousands of nonfiction books into the best key takeaways and need-to-know information. So you can can, uh, listen to them and just read or listen to them in just 15 minutes. Eight million people are using Blinkist right now it's a mass, it has a massive and growing library from self-help, business, health, to history books. I like Blinkist because there are some books I want to know what it's about without committing to the nine hours or 12 hours it's going to take me to read them or listen to them audio audiobooks. So here's one. I've always been interested in, like, it, it sells a, a, a billion copies over time. I don't want to read the whole book, but I'd like to know what it's about. The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. By, you've seen it, right? You've seen it at Barnes & Noble. Maybe you can get it with your 50% off book haul. But if you want the, the digested version or you get the nuggets... Try Blinkist out. Another one you might be interested in is um, Freakonomics. This is in History, Biography, and General Knowledge, one of their categories there. You want the idea of Freakonomics, but you don't need all the examples and everything else. There's, there's some books out there that you want just... G- g- give me the, the brief. G- give me the, the condensed version that I can take. And if I want to come back and read the book later, I can. But at least I'll know the gist of the thing. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash bookriot to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, and go to Blinkist.com slash bookwrite to start your free seven-day trial. Thanks to them for sponsoring this episode of the Book Riot Podcast. Okay. okay. We, Whoa, Plagiarism yeah, Corner. Plagiarism Corner. We teased on the last episode that we knew yeah. this was going on. We needed to get recapped i have to say i'm not sure that there's a way to get fully recapped about this because mm-hmm. it seems to be ongoing and also it, like this is a story with many many tentacles yes um, but the tldr version of the i guess first layer of it is that an author named christiane Saruya uh, has been discovered to be allegedly plagiarizing huge chunks of copy from Mm. romance novels into her own romance novels that are available for sale on Amazon. Um, Or rather, she did not plagiarize those sections, but um, in the discovery of the plagiarized sections, she revealed that she had hired ghostwriters off of Fiverr, which if you're Mm. unfamiliar is a website where you can pay people five bucks or more, maybe less, I'm not sure, um, to do 
stuff on the internet for you. Um, you can have them check your email. You can ask them to do tasks. You can have them write code or transcribe an interview mm -hmm. or like really whatever it is that you can think of. You can find a person on Fiverr who might be willing to do that thing for money. And apparently ghost writers on Fiverr is a thing, which is the second layer of yeah, this story. Right. So the first layer is pretty astonishing. Um, Courtney Milan, who is a, a well-known romance writer, is also a lawyer has a long post on her blog about discovering that multiple passage from passages from her book, The Duchess War, were plagiarized into, like word for word, um, into Christiane Suruya's book. And she shows mm -hmm. examples of those, um, including the Kindle locations of the plagiarized sections in uh, Suruya's books, and then gives, you know, a lot of detail about how she thinks that this should be handled. Um, it also mm -hmm. turns out that there are plagiarized sections or allegedly plagiarized sections from a lot of other romance novelists' yeah. uh, work appearing in Christiane Soroya's work, um, including Nora Roberts. So Nora mm. Roberts has got a blog and she has a big post about all of this. Um, but hers starts with a story about being plagiarized back in the late 90s before the internet was really a thing. So there's like sort of a, this is a long, like many thousands of words piece yeah. on Nora Roberts's blog. I saw um, Sarah McLean on Twitter saying that she found sections from some of her books in some of Christiane Soroya's novels on Twitter. And I think this is, um, I don't know. I mean, it's outrageous, obviously. Like you're taking right. other people's work and putting it into your own work and selling it yourself. And it seems to me that Christiane Soroya did not do a great job of owning that this was happening because she was like, well, I didn't plagiarize it. My copywriter, or my, um, my ghostwriter. <sighs> that's, that's a tough, um, you know, fallback like right like <laughs> you're right argument. and someone directly or many people i think directly mm. said to her like well you're still responsible for it right like you still hired the ghostwriter and you still published this thing with your name on it so you yeah. are responsible for having done that um hopefully uh, maybe i'm not sure christian soroya will be pursuing some kind of action against the folks that she hired who did not do the work she paid them for if they were not no. actually writing they were taking copy from other existing books, but this led me down a rabbit hole on the internet about like that hiring ghost. Like, like I thought that ghost writers were really just a thing for like famous people who were too busy to right. write their own novels, yes. you know, or to write their own memoirs. Usually, like, like Michelle Obama has acknowledged that she worked with a team of writers on becoming. Mm -hmm. um, Many famous people who write memoirs have a ghost writer or even the co-writer's name appears on the cover, you know, and you know who they wrote the book with. Um, the James Patterson, like, novel factory thing, that's not a ghost writer situation so much anymore because their names are all on it. But, like, I thought mm -hmm. ghost writers were just for things of that caliber. Like, you got a big publishing deal, but also you're helping run the country, so you need some help. Writing well, your you're, book. you're being explicit about what it is, right? This person, it's not just my words. I had help, and you're not going to annotate every yeah. single phrase to say who was who. Well, but right, like, and it's not always you're representing what the thing actually yeah. is. It's not always acknowledged. Like this is why it's no. a ghost writer. Is that very often celebrity memoirs come out and they only have the celebrity's name on the cover, and the ghost writers know that going in. You know that they're going mm. to like sit down and have long chats with this person or take their notes and turn them into a narrative, and they don't get their name on the cover of a book, but they get paid um and 
I've known a couple of folks who have worked on some celebrity memoirs, and I, that's a pretty decent gig. Um, it yeah. seems to be worth it to not have your name on the cover. And within publishing circles, you can still say like, oh, and I ghost wrote whoever's novel like, uh, or whoever's memoir, like unless there's an NDA, you don't have to keep it a secret. Right. But this is a like people just trying to self-publish on Kindle to make some money are paying money to strangers on the internet to write their books for them. And this was like a whole... Yeah, it's maybe yeah, I'm naive, but this was so I should surprising. have thought about this, right? Like, if a system can be abused, it will be abused. Mm-hmm. Like, that's that's something that we know. And I hadn't quite put these Lego bricks together. Yeah, that. me neither. You know, they're they're the the gateway to publishing is is effectively non-existent now. So really, the 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 bottleneck in production is the author's time and attention and effort, right? Like mm-hmm. the the thing that their constraint is producing the words and then the marketing, like telling people about and getting to buy that. So if you can take a shortcut on the production, you can focus your things on other things and produce more works. So I, in, in hindsight, I'm not surprised that this is a thing that happens. I think, I think, ask, I think expecting people on Fiverr not to also take shortcuts, like if you are taking the short, like it's shortcuts all the way down, basically, <laughs> that they're yeah. going to find other things. You know, I, I don't know what the legal standard for plagiarism is, I should say. But boy, looking at Courtney Milan's examples, it doesn't look good. Um, just from sort of a gut test of what I myself would consider plagiarism, boy, that sure mm-hmm. looks like it. The thing that's interesting about the internet is it makes plagiarizing things both easier and easier to find. Right. Right. So I don't know that. I, I don't know that there's you know there's been much. I don't know that there's been much. Um, progress like has it been good for copyright holders or the infringers i think it's probably been good for both in some cases i will say probably in the old days plagiarizing a bunch of books and self-publishing it on a printing press and trying to sell it physical copies by hand was not lucrative you just didn't have the scale where now you can put them on digital platforms that themselves aren't checking or you know are are more laissez-faire let's say about what's on the platforms then you can go from there. The other story that this connects to a little bit that we also didn't talk about because I think it was over break was Jill Abramson's book, Merchants of Truth, oh, in which right. basically some sections of the book were, again, I didn't read this too deeply because it was like very complicated, mm-hmm. but some sections, to use the Jill Abramson point of view first, should have been marked as quotations and were uh-huh. not. And they looked in the text like they were just original writing, but also that Jill Abramson leaned upon someone to help her with the book. I don't know that rose to the level of gut writer. So I think the language was dr- drafted passage of this book, X person mm-hmm. drafted passage of this book. And it was in the acknowledgements. Yeah. And so, you know, if you cannot stand behind the work that's in your book, then you are left open to like not knowing the provenance of like the particular mm-hmm. phrase or passage that comes well, from. In the, in the, in the Abramson case too, that comes back to the publishing really does a not very good job in general no. of fact checking nonfiction. Um, and, or, and, and, and they, they, they don't, and also they can't really under the current right. business models. We wouldn't, I mean, literally we wouldn't have any, non, well, not any, but we wouldn't have nonfiction books uh, in, in the current because mm-hmm. the fact checking would cost so much money. Yeah. But you um, know, like, so I don't know, I don't know what the right way is. Uh, sorry wonder, to jump on you with a caveat. I go back and forth about this, my own soul. Yeah. I, just, I think about fact this checking. I, I mean, fact checking is like, that's an expensive undertaking and you're right. right. That would be difficult. But the straight up plagiarizing thing, I think right. should be less of a, a less difficult needle to thread because there is software mm-hmm. for this. Like high schools and colleges are, are using this software. And so if it's, yeah. and the way that I understand that the software works, and if you're a teacher or somebody who knows more about yeah, please this, let please us let know. us know. Um, but I understand like you feed in the text that you have 
acquired either from a student or a writer and it goes out onto the internet and crawls to see if sections of that text are taken from anything else that's available online and now like maybe the stuff that abramson should have put in quotation marks is not available online or like hasn't been scanned into google books or whatever but if it had been just running like can can the bare minimum of publishing responsibility be running nonfiction books through a plagiarism check <laughs> like that doesn't solve the Fiverr yeah I don't know I mean ghostwriter that, that on its face seems like a wonderful idea but is <laughs> are the full texts of all copyrighted material exactly, available to be right, like uh, are they available right. in some repository where it's available to check and, against but also yeah, not a maybe, pirate fest of iniquity right and like know. maybe not maybe it's logistically impossible but even if only some yeah. of the uh, copyrighted text were available checking it against those is better i think than checking it against nothing mm-hmm. um publishing like these always become the passing of the buck when it's a publishing story like what happened with christiane Staruya, who self-publishes like she's passing the buck too right to right. i didn't do this my ghostwriter did it i'm really interested i assume there's going to be court cases about this like who do you take to court do you take to court the author and then does the author take the ghostwriters to court like how is that mm-hmm. all going to shake out but when it comes out that a work of nonfiction, either someone's memoir or something that's like a straightforward factual um you know narrative nonfiction book contains either plagiarism or factual errors there's like a momentary pearl clutching about like did no one fact check this and then publishing make like whoever the person's publisher is makes a vague statement about like shruggy man like yeah. you know we trusted the author and the author is like i thought i was doing the right thing and then it all mm. just sort of goes away um, well i guess there's a di- we're talking about two different things really there's straight up plagiarism which is you know these word right. for word and that's what really, courtney milan really has highlighted mm-hmm. here and there's a lot of it and it's, it's very compelling but you can see it side by side the fact checking things can be a little bit different though it's not necessarily different which is is this intellectual work someone else's that isn't cited properly and i a, a straight up textual comparison may or may not catch that kind of thing if you spin it into your own language someone else's ideas um that that's a different sort of thing but what is possible and what's responsible to do um I think is is interesting to think about, you know, that it's it, the expectation is you're not going to plagiarize, of course, but then what safeguards can a publisher, editor, agent reasonably uh, enact? You know, what, what does due diligence look like yeah. to check for plagiarism? I, I don't know the it's answer. It's a really complicated question. Very um, complicated question. But, Though I think it's much more complicated than this particular right. case. <laughs> really, I mean, it's, it gets us to a, this. In, in a way, this isn't that interesting. Like, that's why we said the thing that mm-hmm. the, the Fiverr, the ghostwriter situation writ large is a fascinating one to think about. But even going back to like, again, I'm sorry to do this. Um, not really. I'm, I'm not sorry. Oh, no. But like how much of like Look Homeward Angel was actually written by Thomas Wolfe or was the editors, you know, reshaping of it or or Maxwell, you know, like this goes back to when, when it said by Ernest Hemingway on the cover, what do we really understand that to mean? Um, it's not as simple, I think, as uh, we'd want it to be in a lot of, ca- mm-hmm. <laughs> in a lot of cases. <laughs> um, and that's, that's to just take one example, right? Um, but then with ghostwriters, non-ghostwriters, ghostwriters that aren't disclosed, um, you know, what, what do author, what do re, what do, I guess, who, who's the victim in some of these cases? Well, the victim in this case is clearly Courtney Milan, right? The victim in other plagiarized cases, the original, um, owner of the copyright, the originator of the idea, but there's a case that to be made that another victim is the, the buyer, right? Mm-hmm. That you're not buying 
the work of this particular author or you're buying the work of someone who plagiarizes that's tough it's it's hard to know um what really can be done um unless unless just the full text of all copyrighted materials are in some database that you feed your manuscript into and it and it pings you maybe that's that's the only thing i can think of a solution but there's all kinds of weird problems with that too i would think um so and here yeah. we are here we are here we are. I have many do, questions. We're do, uh, we have you a hero know, of the week. Let's Tell just me about do the hero our hero of the week, of the week and, yeah. and then get out of here. This is a great story from Oklahoma City. It's about a woman named Emma Smrecker, uh, who has a habit of, she's a French teacher. She works at Harding Charter Prep. And in her free time, she collects used books. And if you're familiar with that experience, you know, often you acquire used books that have random items left in them, like either an everyday object that someone was using as a bookmark or just something that got caught in the book. She said she's found a nail, um, you know, like a um, like a hardware nail. She's also found a nail file. She found a corn husk in a book once. She's found all, or, all mm. sorts of personal items that she has tried to reunite their, with your, their original owners, but she very recently had her first success, and it's a good one. She found a poem from 1893 written in cursive addressed to the Lancaster Gazette in Ohio. Uh, presumably this poem was supposed to go to the newspaper and never reached the newspaper and it was tucked inside a book that she acquired. So she started Googling. She was bored on Christmas break. She says, I was a bored teacher on Christmas break, so I figured why not? And I've got a day to kill. <laughs> um, she found a census match for, <laughs> this is so good, for Ed Ruffner, uh, who was the writer of the poem. She found a census match. She um, then went through ancestries that she had found online. And eventually, after like drawing out what she thought this person's family tree was, she tracked down a great granddaughter on Instagram. Wow. <laughs> and it turns out it actually was his great granddaughter. She returned the poem to them. And the letter with the poem was eventually published as it was intended to have been more than a century ago. And mm. she said, their whole family is kind of spread out throughout the United States, and they've been able to reconnect over this letter. Honestly, it made me tear up a little bit when I heard about it. And her next task is reuniting a family with a poem about a grandfather who watched his grandson grow up. The kid's name is Kevin, and it was found at a local estate sale. Mm. Um, I just thought this was lovely and uplifting. And it's so great. I definitely feel like uh, cozy mystery is the wrong thing, but some sort of like cozy feel good yeah. could be, you know, like someone, this is their, this is their it, kind of like in the line of the um, storied life of AJ Fickery kind mm -hmm. of mode where mm -hmm. they, they come and they revitalize the town by making connections between people. Um, I thought it was great. Well, well done. Yes. Uh, Smrecker. If you would like to follow her adventures, you can do so on Instagram. The handle is in used books. Hmm. Great story. I think we should end it there. I think so. That's a nice way to stop our show today. Yeah. Email us at podcast at bookriot.com. Um, let's see. We want to know about a couple of things. Oh, the Booker Prize people who, who who really follow and care about the Booker Prize as, a, as an entity like to know what you think of Crankstart. I guess the the finally got to maybe the most interesting emailable question is your your perfect sponsor, mm. your perfect Booker. If you could pick one out of a hat, um, what would you like to know there? I'd also like to know little birdies about book, uh, Barnes & Noble's book haul would be welcome. Um, and if you know things about ghostwriting and copyright stuff and publishing, 
Um, that's also very interesting, and we could do some follow-up there. As always, we won't use your name unless you want us to. That's our show today. Rebecca, thank you so much. Have a good one. Mm-hmm.